Hello everyone, this is Pastor Damien. You're listening to Sermon Audio from New City, Orlando. At New City, we believe all of us need all of Jesus for all of life. For more resources, visit our website at newcityorlando.com. Thanks for listening. Okay, with that, I'd ask everyone, please stand for this morning's call to worship. You'll join with me out loud. It's behind me on the screen. Let's pray it together. Heavenly Father, we wish to see Jesus. By your Spirit's power, give us eyes to see his glory. Through Christ we pray. Amen. And now please do remain standing for this morning's scripture reading. This morning's scripture reading comes from Romans chapter 3, verses 19 through 31. Now, we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, He had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. This is God's word. Please be seated. When you introduce yourself at a party or at an event, uh, what's usually the first question you get asked? It's usually some version of, what do you do? What do you do? And, and I'm assuming that many of you have had the experience of answering that question, and depending on how you answer that question, experiencing the person you're talking to either kind of moving towards you or moving away from you. We ask that question because we assess people based on their activity, based on what they do. Now, this isn't just related to work. It's also true of parenting methods. It's also true of political stances. It's also true of social activism. It's true of the crowds that we run with. It's true of the institutions and the degrees that we have from those institutions. We're constantly assessing the people around us and being assessed by the people around us. So pervasive is this that uh, Elaine de Baton names this in a book called Status Anxiety. Status Anxiety is this constant concern to avoid being seen as unsuccessful in the eyes of others. 
a constant concern. The worst thing that could happen to me is to be seen as unsuccessful. Define success however you please. Like depending on your subculture that, you in, uh, that you're in, you want to be right in the sight of others. You want to be right in the sight of others. Uh, in an interview with Vogue magazine, Madonna, talking about her career, said it like this. My drive in life comes from a fear of being mediocre. That is always pushing me. I push past one spell of it and discover myself as a special human being, but then I feel I'm still mediocre and uninteresting unless I do something else. Because even though I have become somebody, I still have to prove that I am somebody. My struggle has never ended, and I guess it never will. Madonna's not unlike the rest of us. We have this never-ending struggle fueled by status anxiety to be right in the sight of others. So my question for you is, whose eyes do you want to be right in? What must you do to justify your existence? What does it take for you to be proved to be somebody? It's going to be different for, for each of us in here. There's going to be some similarities, but, but this way of, of being in the world that's fueled by anxiety to be right in the sight of others is true for all of us. Um, and so the Bible uses a word for this. The word is justification. Now, it's not a word that uh, is, you're thinking about too often, but it's a word that we use a good bit. Um, if you actually have your Bible and you want to open to Romans 3, um, this is where I get this from. In Romans 3, verse 20, he says it like this. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in God's sight. Or as I'm putting it, right in God's sight. And this word justified comes from the law court. Uh, but many of us, you know, don't spend a lot of time in the law court, but we do spend a lot of time in the court of public opinion. You, you know the word justified when you're in an argument with somebody and you're like, stop trying to justify yourself. What are they doing? They're trying to show how they are right in your sight, or maybe at least in their sight. Or uh, I remember watching or, or listening to uh, a commentator talk about the, the war in Ukraine, and, and they were talking about how Putin was basically set up on the boundary of Ukraine, and he was trying to set it up such that people would see the whole war that, that, that broke out be Ukraine's fault, that they were the aggressors, so that Putin would be right or justified for invading the Ukraine, and that didn't happen. And so therefore, the opposite of being justified is what happened to him, which is he experienced global condemnation. People condemned his actions globally, as they should. Because the opposite of being justified is to be condemned, but the commentator used the language of justification. One uh, psychologist, Stephen C. Hayes, talks about how the correlation between our increased, just exponential levels of anxiety as a culture is correlated with our use of social media. And, and he said the reason why is because we're, we're exposed to more tragedy, more judgment, and more comparison than any human beings in the history of the world. And so what we constantly are doing through social media is, is trying to become right in the sight of whoever follows us, or at least to avoid condemnation, because that's a real live option. 
You see, so justification is not just some archaic biblical term. It's actually very core to our lived experience. And so again, I want to ask you, what do you do to justify yourself? Where do you find yourself trying to avoid condemnation? To be right in the sight of others. And so really there's only two ways for this to work. Either your performance determines your verdict. Righteous, justified, it's based on your performance. Or the verdict of righteous shapes your performance. The only two ways for it to go. Either performance precedes verdict or verdict precedes performance. And the good news of Jesus Christ is that the verdict comes first. And then all that we are and all that we do flows out of that verdict. So important that uh, one commentator said about this text that we're going to look at today, that it is the single most important paragraph ever written in human history. Now that's the kind of thing Bible nerds say about every passage that they're talking about. But I think it just dials things up. Why is this so significant? Well, I want to look at that together. So if you have a Bible or a device, go to Romans chapter 3. We're going to look at 19 through 31 together. And we're going to look at it under these four points. The first one is, who is God? Second is, what has he done? Who are we? What do we do? Four points. Who is God? What has he done? Who are we? What do we do? Let's ask that question. Who is God? Well, according to our text, uh, God is glorious in verse 23. God is gracious, verse 24. God is just, verse 26. And God is one, verse 30. But more than any of those things, God is righteous. It's repeated four times in our text, verse 21, 22, 25, and 26. If this verse is about, chapter is about anything, it's about the righteousness of God. And the righteousness of God is such a robust word. Somebody has said that it's the most important word in understanding Paul. If you want to understand Paul, you have to get what he means by this word righteous or righteousness. And so I've, I've said in a previous sermon um, that there's really three ways of understanding it. The first way is that it is a divine attribute. It is God's self-consistency. His righteousness is his integrity. Another way to say that is his being and his doing are aligned perfectly. And so in the text here, that's one of the ways that Paul uses this. God's activity flows perfectly from his uh, identity. And, and so another way to say that is God's who comes before his due. Uh, who he is shapes what he does, and that, that is God's righteousness. But, but this actually creates an issue. Because if God is just, like the text says, he must condemn the guilty. But if God is gracious, like the text says, he desires to pardon the guilty. And, and this is not just an issue um, in, in the law court, although can we agree that the basics of justice, the guilty are punished, the innocent go free. Like if you don't have that, you don't have justice. So how can God both be just and pardon the guilty? How can he do both of those things? This isn't just a law court problem. It's a problem inherent in God's very being. In Exodus 34, one of the most important <laughs> passages in the Bible, Bible nerds do this, right? Um, Exodus 34, Moses says to the Lord, Lord, show me your glory. I prayed that for you this morning. God, would you show us your glory here? 
And then the Lord passes before Moses and, and speaks about his own name. He says, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, who will forgive transgression and iniquity and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. Since at least Exodus 34, this has been a problem, a tension in the very being of God as he described himself to be. Merciful and gracious, forgives sinners, but will by no means clear the guilty. How? How is that possible? Well, we come to this glorious word that we've already been talking about, which is justification. Look at verse 23 with me. It says this, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift. So, so righteousness is not only a divine attribute, it's also a divine accomplishment. It is that God's righteousness has been accomplished and then is offered as a gifted status to everybody who has faith in Jesus. That's what the righteousness of God is. Let me, let me try to make it plain. Um, in verses 19 and 20, it talks about how the whole world will be held accountable to God. There's, biblically speaking, there's a judgment day in the future where you will stand before God and he will judge you according to what you've done and according to what you've left undone. And just imagine it like this. Imagine that you, you come before the throne of God and there's a book there. And on the book, there's, there's one of those dust jackets that I actually can't stand about hardcover books, but there's a dust jacket on there, and you see your name inscribed on the front of the dust jacket. And God opens up that book, and he begins reading, and you realize as he's reading, he's reading your biography. And he's reading it impartially. He's telling the good with the bad. But he's telling all the times that, that you did and said things that nobody else really heard you say or do, but he did, and it's in the book. All the things that you've done, all the things that you've left undone, all the times that you had moral judgments on other people that you yourself did not live up to, all of them recorded in this book, and he reads page after page after page, and your maybe felt sense of, I'm a good person, just begins to wither as you hear every page turned. But then, God pulls out another book. And on that dust jacket, there's in gold leaf letters, humble but very clear print, and it just says, Jesus. And as God opens that book, you see the table of contents, and it says, you know, maybe the preface is, eternal past in the presence of my Father with all of his delight and joy. And then chapter one is, sent by God to be born of a virgin. And then chapter two is, lived a life of love for the for neighbors and even his enemies. Chapter three is uh, spent uh, three years making disciples. Uh, chapter four is maybe rejected, abandoned, betrayed by his closest friends and family. Chapter five is crucified unjustly under Pontius Pilate. Chapter six is dead and buried. Chapter seven is rose from the dead. Chapter 8 is 40 days with his disciples. Chapter 9 is ascending to uh, the Father's right hand. Chapter 10 is sending the Holy Spirit. Chapter 11 is he will come again, right? You've got Jesus' biography. And God does something so simple yet so unimaginable. He changes the dust jacket covers. 
He puts yours on Jesus's biography and he puts Jesus's on your biography. So what happens now is if you open up the book with your name on it, you read Jesus's life and God judges you on that basis. That is justification. And listen, it is the solution for sinners, but it's a problem for God. How can he do that and yet maintain his justice? How can he not condemn sinners and, and all the while not be condoning sin? To ask Abraham's question, can, shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? Or to put it this way, here's really the problem. How is it, prob- po- excuse me, how is it possible for the righteous God to declare the unrighteous to be righteous without either compromising his righteousness or condoning their unrighteousness. That's the problem we're talking about. How do we solve this problem? And the only way that we can see it is by looking at what has God done. What has God done? Point two. Well, look with me at verse 21. Verse 21 says this, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested. You see, the righteousness of God is not only an attribute, his self-consistency, his integrity. It's not only an accomplishment, his gifted status to those who believe in Jesus. It is also God's activity to save his people, to rescue his people. The righteousness of God is all three of those things, and we see all three of those things happening here. And so, how does God solve the problem? In one word, two words, the cross. The cross is God's solution to this problem. The way that John Stott says it is, the cross is the righteous basis on which the righteous God can righteous the unrighteous without compromising his righteousness. You track with that? If not, it's okay. Let me unpack it a little bit. What I want to do is I want to look really closely at the text, and I'm just going to, I'm going to give you kind of like a heads up here. Um, I am not a handy person. Like it skipped a generation in my family. My grandpa, my dad, you give them anything, they can fix it. They're the kind of people that like, if an alarm clock broke, even if it's irreparably damaged, they're gonna keep it so they can take it apart and see how it works so they can see if they can put it back together. I just won't spend my time doing that. And so like, if Alana has like a honey-do list and she's like, hey, can you do this? I'm like, babe, listen, you can have it cheap, you can have it fast, or you can have it good. Which one do you, you only choose two of those three and she always chooses to have it done well and to pay for it, and to have it fast, because she knows if I do, it's going to be slow, and I'm going to whine a lot. Uh, I'm, I'm really hoping that my little boy, it doesn't skip him, and so by like 10, he's fixing everything around the house. That's, I'm holding, pray for it. Pray for me. What we're going to do here is we're going to take apart justification, and we're going to see how it works. We're going to take it apart, we're going to look at the components of it, because I want to see how it works, and then we're going to put it all back together. So, so if you're like, man, this is going to get too nitty-gritty, just check out, pick up with us on point three. It's okay. What did God do? What did God do? I want to look at what God did on the cross with three words. I want, he's gonna, I'm going to answer the question, what did he do on the cross? How did he do this on the cross? And why did he do it on the cross? And the three words that we have from the text are these. The first thing that answers, what did God do on the cross is he offered redemption. Redemption, a good biblical word. Look at verse 24 with me. It says, are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. 
It's a good Bible word. Redemption just very simply means to be set free. To be set free. But it's always got a from to nature to it. Set free from something to something. Or set free from something for something. Viktor Frankl talked about how one of America's problems is that we have a statue of liberty on the East Coast, but we failed to have a statue of responsibility on the West Coast. We're a culture that's all about what we're free from. We love to talk about our rights. We never talk about our responsibilities. What do we owe to our neighbor as citizens of this country? Viktor Frankl said it was a big issue for Americans. I would argue it's only gotten worse for us. And so to be set free from something is to be set free for or to something as well. These things have to go together. And so what are we set free from? We're set free from sin, from guilt, from the judgment of God. And what are we set free for? To belong to God. To be his very own. To belong to God himself. That's what redemption's all about. Free from, free to. To no longer be our own, but but belong body and soul to our faithful Savior. And so this is really significant because some of us learned a definition of justification that's a really good definition, which is to be justified is just as if I'd, you catch it? It's cute. Justified, just as if I'd never sinned. And I would say yes in its glorious good news. That is The forgiveness of your sins is an integral part of justification. It's only half of it, though. It's only half of it. Because to be forgiven is not the same thing as to be welcomed. One one commentator put it like this. Sir Marcus Lone said, The voice that speaks forgiveness will say, You may go. You have been let off the penalty your sin deserves. But the verdict which speaks acceptance will say, you may come, you are welcome to all my love and presence. Justification has both, forgiveness and welcome, redeemed from the penalty of our sins, redeemed for welcome into God's very family to belong to him. This is what redemption is. This is the from to nature of it. So that's what God did on the cross, but how did he do it? Look at verse 25 with me. How did God do this? It says, Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a, here's the word, propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. So the first word's redemption. Again, we're taking apart the cross and getting to see how it works, putting it back together. First word's redemption. The second word is propitiation. Propitiation is probably not a word that showed up in your text threads this week. Am I, am I right? Okay. You don't use this one that often. And, and really, the definition of it is, it's the action of appeasing a God or a person. That's what propitiation means. Uh, the way I used to teach it was, it's a wrath sponge. It absorbs the anger to make right the relationship. That's what propitiation is. Now, some people have been concerned about using this word here. Should we really translate it with this word? Doesn't this seem a little pagan? God is this pernicious God that you've got to appease with sacrifice so he doesn't smite you? Well, before we go any further, I just want to say, um, in my clinical experience sitting with war veterans, there's there's a whole category in psychology called moral injury, which is when you've done things and seen things that have damaged your psyche beyond repair. And I've sat with war vets 
who have said things like, man, I would just, I would love to be like, to heroically rescue some people from a bank robbery and be cut down in a hail of gunfire. I fantasize about that. They'll say this to me, and you ask the questions, why, why? Because they survived and other people didn't. So now they've got to atone, they've got to make right their existence, they've got to justify their existence. Or they've seen things or done things that are beyond belief horrendous. And so they need to make clean, they need to do, they, really they need to propitiate their own conscience. So before you run off and think this is just some pagan thing that's like archaic, it's, no, 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 this is a felt psychological experience. I need to appease my own conscience. And so why do we believe that propitiation is the best word to use here? Well, because pagans, uh, the way paganism works is you've got a, a pagan worshiper who offers a sacrifice to, a, to pr- uh, appease their pagan god, right? Okay, this is, this is how it works. It's fundamentally different from Christianity in so many ways. I'm going to show you those in a moment. But one of the other critiques, this is a more recent one, is, yeah, okay, so how is this not divine child abuse? God the Father puts forward God the Son to bear his wrath on the cross? How is that not divine child abuse? Um, because the way that it's conceived is as if God the Father is just like constantly like low-grade simmer angry with you. And, and, and you do something stupid. And, and so God's about to backhand you and Jesus steps in and takes it on your behalf and it's like, chill, Dad. It's okay. It's okay. They're with me. That is borderline blasphemous. It's such an ill-conceived notion of what's actually happening here that, that it's so important for us to slow down and tease this out. First of all, God the Father, the most famous and well-known passage in all the Bible, for God the Father so loved the world that he sent his Son. So if there was any propitiation, it was rooted in the love of God the Father for sinners. Let me say that differently. Jesus didn't die for you to get God to love you. Jesus died for you because God loves you. Do you understand that? That's so important. Otherwise, your relationship with the Father is going to be marred. You're going to think Jesus is is your homeboy, but God the Father is just kind of distant and maybe frustrated with you. That's not the way that this works. In fact, look at the very text itself in verses 24 and 25. It says this, that we are justified by God the Father's grace as a gift from God the Father through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus whom God the Father put forward. So you see the motive, the, the source of our redemption and of our propitiation, of his propitiation, is God the Father's love for us, his grace towards us. But it's also not divine child abuse because the reason God the Father put Jesus forward is because Jesus stepped forward willingly. Psalm 40 puts it like this, I delight to do your will. Jesus delights to do the Father's will. The Father's like, hey, in love, I'm gonna send you. And and Jesus is like, yes, send me. Here I am. In John 10, Jesus says it like this, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down of my own accord. Galatians 2 says it like this. Paul, the same author of Romans, says it just like this. He says, I live my life now by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. 
Far from this being divine child abuse, a a wrathful father appeased by, by an unwilling son, it is a loving father who sends his son Jesus who willingly comes and takes our place in order to bring us back into the fold of the family. That's what propitiation is all about. Uh, John Stott puts it like this. I think he says it most succinctly. God himself gave himself to save us from himself. So far from being crudity that would deserve or evoke our ridicule, there's profundity here that should evoke our worship. That God himself would give himself to save us from himself. This is not paganism. In fact, I would argue that we should probably be, be wary of anybody who wants to deal, do away with propitiation language. Uh, Richard Niebuhr puts it like this. He was a, a theologian from the last century. He said, he warned us about this progressive temptation in theology, which is towards this. A God without wrath who takes men and women without sin into a kingdom without judgment thanks to the work of a Christ without a cross. All of those things, are, it's, it's our tendency because they offend our sensibilities. That God himself had to give himself to save you and me from himself. It offends our sensibilities. So of course we're going to cut off the sharp corners. That progressive tendency in theology is anathema. It is not allowed. We take the word propitiation for what it means. But it's not only what God did in redemption. It's not only how he did it in propitiation, it's why he did it in demonstration. Look with me at verse 25. Verse 25 says it like this. Whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show, or the word I'm using is demonstrate. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to, again, show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Twice there, Paul talks about how God is demonstrating or putting on public display his righteousness through the cross of Jesus Christ. So so what is this? Why did the cross have to happen? Why did this happen? To give a public demonstration to God's righteousness, but why? Well, look again at verse 25. It says, This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. Let me just slow down here. One of the ways I prepare for sermons is I will meditate on the text myself. I'll read it, I'll reflect on it, I'll respond in prayer, and I'll try to just rest in the truth of who God is and what he's done. Um, and, And in this process, this week, I just lingered. I asked the Holy Spirit, give me a couple words or a phrase to linger over. I lingered over these two words, divine forbearance. Divine forbearance. And, And I'm just under the impression that God has something to say to somebody here this morning. And this is it. You've not sinned your way out of his grace because you didn't work your way into his grace. He is patient with you. He's not giving up on you. He's not abandoning you. He's not running away from you. His divine forbearance means that he will bear with you. He will bear you up. He will continue going on with you. This is good news for those of us who who think we should be better than we are right now. God's 
divine forbearance is such good news that it creates a problem for God. That people might think he's no longer just because he just lets sin go willy-nilly almost. God's divine forbearance. This word's only used one other time in the New Testament. We've seen it already. If you flip back one page to Romans 2.4, it says this, or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. Listen, if you live under this sense that God is distant because you're not performing well enough, his divine forbearance, his patience with you, his kindness to you is an invitation to come back home. On par with Luke 15, where he's waiting, forbearing with you in your sin, just eagerly anticipating the day when he'll see his son or his daughter at the end of the road and he will run in an undignified way to you and wrap his arms around you and kiss you on your neck and welcome you back home as a son or a daughter. That's the good news of divine forbearance for sinners like you and me. But it creates a problem for God because he almost seems like his grace is too much. And, and really what, what Paul's talking about here is the Old Testament picture of God. God passed over the sin of Eve eating the fruit. He passed over the sin of Abraham giving his wife as a sister to avoid his own problems. God passed over the sin of Moses killing an Egyptian. God passed over the sin of David who uh, took Bathsheba when he was, she wasn't his own and then killed her husband. God passed over sin after sin after sin after sin, including yours and mine. And it and it began to ask the question, does he even care anymore? Can you get away with anything? I mean, literally, you can get away with murder. Look at David. And so in order to maintain his justice and be the justifier of the unrighteous, he put forward Jesus on the cross. The way that God is able to maintain his justice and yet not punish you for your sins is because he punished Jesus for your sins on the cross 2,000 years ago. The way Jesus, that, that God the Father could pass over all of those sins before Jesus came was because in his divine forbearance, he looked forward to the day when he would bring down justice on Christ on the cross in the future. You see, the cross is the hinge of history. We look back to it in faith. Abraham, Moses, David looked forward to it in faith. This is how God can be both just and justifier. This is how he demonstrates that he is righteous. You look at the cross of Jesus Christ. So that is what God has done. Now let's ask the question, who are we? Who are we in light of all of that? If on the cross of Christ, God redeemed his people, he propitiated his wrath, and he demonstrated his justice. If those three, three things happen on the cross of Christ, who are we in light of that? Remember I started by saying your identity has to precede your activity. God, who God is and what he's done shapes who we are and what we do. The order really matters. Don't get it any other way. Who are we? Well, the first time we show up in this text, we are sinners. We're those who fall short of the glory of God. And this is important. The reason Christianity takes sin so seriously, the reason sin is such a big deal is because you are kind of a big deal. This is how Psalm 8 puts it. He has crowned you with glory and honor 
and put all things under your feet. That's, that's what it means to be human. It's to be crowned with glory and honor. And because that was your vocation, your calling, and you've fallen short of that, that's why sin is such a big deal. It's because of the dignity and responsibility that you were given as bearers of God's very own image. And so one person put it like this. You might be able to look around and be like, yeah, well, you know, I've fallen short of God's glory, maybe. But like so-and-so is in the pit over here. Like they're down in a mine underground. That's how far fall they short. And, and, and you might say, I'm over here on the Alps. Like I'm on the peak and I'm not doing too bad. Well, listen, how are you doing at getting onto the stars from the peak of the Alps? It doesn't matter if you're on the peak of the Alps or in the lowest pit in Mariana's Trench. It doesn't matter. You fall short of the glory of God and it is unattainable, unreachable for you despite God's divine intervention. And so the first time we show up is as sinners falling short of the glory of God. The next time we show up is as those who are justified, made right in God's sight in our text. And so listen, our lives are never the basis of our acceptance before God. Full stop. Put that to rest today. Your life is never the basis of your acceptance before God. Jesus' life, the one who was and who is and who is to come, the one who is the same yesterday and today and forever, Jesus' life is the secure basis of your righteous acceptance before God, and there is no other. So who are we? We're the, we're the accepted ones. We're the justified. We're the, the righteous ones. Tim Keller puts it like this, every other way of being in the world takes your verdict and puts it after your performance. So like you might be an agnostic or an atheist here this morning and you might just think like you're a decent person. You've kind of conjured up a good self-image because of the good things that you've done. And, and listen, the verdict, I'm a decent person, was preceded by activity, performance on your behalf. What happens if you do something that startles your own sensibilities about yourself? You ever been there? I have surprised that I was capable of doing the thing that I had done. What do you do then? Whether you're a Muslim or a Buddhist or a Hindu or a secularist, it doesn't matter. All of those are systems that put our performance before the verdict, whether or not you'll be accepted right in their sight. Only the gospel of Jesus Christ puts the verdict before your performance. It calls you accepted. It welcomes you on no basis in and of yourself. And it's the only thing that can free us from that endless striving. You remember how, how Madonna put it? She said it like this. Because even though I have become somebody, I performed, I got the verdict, I am somebody. Even though I've become somebody, I still have to prove that I am somebody. My struggle has never ended and I guess it never will. As long as who you are is based on what you do, you will never, ever, ever be able to rest. You'll never be secure. You'll always be hustling to gain a verdict that is outside of your reach. And so who are we? We are those who, because of who God is and what he's done, it shapes who we are and then finally what we do. Let's look at the fourth and final point as we close. We don't have time to look at verses 27 through 31. I'm just going to read the first verse here. Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. Five times in that little paragraph there, Paul uses the word faith. Three times in the verses that we've already looked at. Look at verse 22 real quick. It says this. 
the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Look at verse 25. Whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Verse 26. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Constantly Paul is talking about faith in this text. And so this is important to name. What do we do? We believe we have faith in, we, we put our confidence in all that God is for us and all that God has done for us in Jesus. That's what we do. Now here's a tempt- another temptation. Is faith just the only work that we have to contribute? No. Everywhere throughout this passage, he's putting faith against working. Faith is not in and of itself a work. You offer nothing to the equation of your salvation. You don't contribute your part and God does his part. Even if it's 99% God and 1% you just saying, yeah, God, I want that. That's not how it works. In fact, the way that this works is you can either look inside yourself to be right in God's sight or you can look outside yourself by faith to look right in God's sight. Two options, that's it. So don't even look to your faith. God doesn't look to your faith. He looks at the object of your faith, Jesus, and justifies you on that basis. Faith's only function is to receive what grace offers. Faith's only function is to receive what grace offers. And so what do we do? We refuse to trust ourselves. We say no to looking inside ourselves to be right before God in any way. We look outside ourselves to Jesus, and faith receives what grace offers offers, and this cuts boasting at its legs. Boasting is self-promotion. Boasting is the antithesis of grace. Here's the way Paul puts it in 1 Corinthians 4, 7. Who sees anything different in you? I kind of want him to say, bro. Like, who sees anything different in you, bro? Like, what are you thinking? What do you have that you have not received? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? That's the posture of faith. I have nothing that I didn't receive. So what would I boast in? Let me close the way I think Jesus would close this, which is kind of boastful, I'm sorry, but uh, by telling a quick story. It's the story of Jesus himself in Luke 18. If you want to flip back a a little bit, you can look at it with me. In, In Luke 18, Jesus tells this story, and it says, He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Notice how that goes together. Like, if you're here and you've got, um, some of you have like clean car righteousness and like you get into somebody else's car and they've got like weak old McDonald's in the front seat, which is gross. But you immediately are like, you are a horrible human being. Like, if you went to my car, you could eat off of my floor mat. Like, what is clean car righteousness? Some of you have like diet righteousness. You're like, you're really gonna eat that? You're really gonna order that? You know that's fried, right? You know that has calories, right? You know that has gluten, right? Like, you have diet righteousness. I used to struggle from something called sleep righteousness. Like, if I woke up in the early, early, early in the morning, I was like crushing it. If I overslept, it was like an abysmal day. I'd read the Puritans and be like, if I'm not up before the blacksmith is serving his master, if I'm not serving my master before the dawn awakens upon my face like David, then I'm not serving my master. And, and I'm, like, I'm like, yeah, that's metal. Like, I'm all about that. I mean, literally, it's a blacksmith. And so I'm always just like, yes, this is what I, and then my sleep righteousness. I perform and then I don't. And then my verdict is messed up based on that. So when you have that righteous, as Jesus says in Luke 18, 
He told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. See how it works? This is the parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee. I think we need to read the Bible and put ourselves in the shoes of Pharisees more often. I think it would protect us from a lot of the shenanigans we see in the church these days. Uh, One was a Pharisee, the other was a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. Tax collector's like, bro, I'm just doing a me and Jesus thing. Like, don't bring me into your prayers. That's what people that look at other people with contempt do. Listen to what he says. I fast twice a week. Like, if he was here, he'd run circles around your common rhythm practices. He fasts twice a week. Crazy. I tithe out of my spice rack. That's what he says elsewhere. I fast, I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector standing far off would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. That word, be merciful, is the same root word as propitiation we saw earlier. God, be propitious to me, a sinner. I don't know how you're gonna do that. The cross hasn't happened yet. I don't know how you're going to do that, but figure out a way to be propitious, merciful to me, a sinner. And here's Jesus' devastating commentary on his own parable. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. Jesus gives us his principle. Everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Let's pray. I'm going to lead you in response to this sermon before you go to the table. So the question I want you to wrestle out with the Spirit of God right now is where do you endlessly struggle to prove that you are somebody? Talk to him about that. Now, whoever you are, wherever you are, would you open the empty hands of faith to receive all that God is for you and all that God has done for you in Jesus. Received his verdict before your performance. That you are right in God's sight by faith in Jesus alone. Jesus, we praise you. We praise you that you are the basis of our acceptance. Father, we praise you that you are a loving God full of grace and mercy. That you are righteous and just. Holy Spirit, would you search us, O God, and know our hearts. See if there be any grievous way in us. Lead us in the way everlasting this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.